ESP Voices podcast, where we tell personal stories with universal impact. I'm your host, Amanda Stubbert. Today, we got to sit down with Kevin Tyson. He spent more than six years writing about Seattle sports as the director of marketing and communications for the Seattle Sports Commission. He's a former catcher on the University of Washington baseball team. Then he played professionally in the Anaheim Angels minor league system and then overseas in Austria. His post-playing days have been spent coaching baseball, first for five years on the staff at the University of Washington, and now leading a high school-aged summer program in the Seattle area. Kevin now works at SPU on our advancement team. His new book, When It Mattered Most, tells the forgotten story of America's and Seattle's first Stanley Cup champions and the war to end all wars. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just start with sort of the obvious, um, you know, the, this book, everything you write about took place a hundred plus years ago. What got you interested in writing about Seattle's first hockey team? So I was asked to help uh, promote the centennial in 2017 and a super busy day, get called into a meeting I didn't want to be in and I'm sitting down on my head in my hands and the guy starts talking and starts talking about the Seattle hockey team and the first team to American team to win the Stanley cup. And I literally stopped what I was doing, looked at him and said, did you say Seattle and Stanley cup in the same sentence? And, uh, you know, we had a fantastic time promoting it. And like everyone else, I just read boys in the boat. So the truth is I started pitching every author I knew to write the story. And, uh, I got zero responses and was frustrated for about six months and complained nonstop to my wife. And, uh, she finally looked at me one day and said, you know, why don't you shut up and write it yourself? And <laughs> I kind of laughed, said there's no way I could write a book. And then the thought wouldn't leave my head. And it was probably a week of sort of sleepless nights, just thinking if I could do it or not. And then uh, jumped in and, and decided at least I was going to start researching and figure out if there was an actual story to tell. So, so then you started researching, obviously. And yeah. What did you find out along the way that made you say, okay, this is going to happen. So the first day that I went to do research, I went to the Seattle Central Library and had the librarian show me how to put the microfilm in because the Seattle Post Intelligent at that time wasn't even digitized, right? So it wasn't like I could just sit down and, and search for things. And so I put the microfilms in for March of 1917 and I start scrolling through them to try and get to the Stanley Cup final. And it was obvious immediately that the war was imminent that world war one was that the u.s was about to get pulled into it and i keep scrolling and keep scrolling and i get to uh three or four days before game one and the headline is absolutely massive and it says czar abdicates and i i sat there and i stared at the uh screen for about five minutes and then i looked down and said i wonder when we got pulled into the war and so i pulled my phone out and i googled the date and it was six days after the final game of the series. And so immediately I was like, well, I mean, those are absolutely world changing events, spectacular. Uh, so at least there's something. And then I, I went through and I started reading the, the series and it was amazing. I mean, like completely different than I thought it was going to be and captivated me. And I mean, literally in the span of 30 minutes, it's like, okay, well, at least I know the end will be spectacular. And then as I, I, I started going backwards through the first season, it just got better and better and better and better and better to the point where Walt Disney, in my opinion, literally could not have scripted the story any, any better than it was. 
Okay, can we just backtrack a minute to the microfilm? Because those of us of a certain age, I'm just going to tell you right now, that would have been the end of it for me. I don't think I ever found what I was looking for on microfilm or microfish, ever. You check out the thing, you put it in the machine, you scroll, and it goes too fast or too slow. I'm not sure I ever found what I was looking for. So props to you yeah, for, thank you. for making the whole <laughs> technology work. Okay, so you found this story. You must have wondered like how is this story in my lap if it, you know a story that good why hasn't anyone told this story before i mean absolutely right and the, the thing that's uh sort of wild for me too is like i grew up in seattle i grew spent my entire adult life in the, the sports scene and i didn't know that this happened you know and then as you go back and you start looking i, I like i actually sent an email to a guy I know at the Hockey Hall of Fame and then said, you know, what, what is the deal with this? Like, was this just a team of mercenaries that came in and spent a year in Seattle? You know, like, did anybody actually even care about the Stanley Cup back then? I, I thought it would be hilarious if I wrote this story and then come to find out that the Stanley Cup was something that became famous like 30 years afterwards. And we just went back and, it, you know, figured out who won it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, as I got like deeper into it, it just realized one, the Stanley cup was huge back then Two, the Metropolitans were massive in Seattle, like bigger than the Seahawks are now today. And the story was huge until really like probably just after world war two, right? Like all the people's kind of start dying at that point. And the last player dies in the mid sixties. So as each guy dies, there's a, a fairly big obituary in the times and the PI and the Royal Brome, uh, who the younger generation, you know, you were talking about earlier, right? They only know him as a street between the, the two stadiums, right? I mean, he's the patriarch of the Seattle sports scene, and he's the Metropolitan's official scorer. So he's 21 years old, like first job, and he's their official scorer as he's writing for the PI. And so when Royal dies in the 70s, really the story kind of dies with him. And then it gets talked about like two or three other times. And so I just, you know, I, I think that it's pre-TV, pre-radio, and it, it died on microfilm, right? And so I was- Because people like me couldn't find the story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and you just, like, you go back and you look at it, and, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, that history should remember those that are worthy, right? And these guys absolutely are worthy to be remembered. They should be talked about. You know, you're starting to see statues going in outside of our stadiums, and there's three guys from the Metropolitans that are in the Hall of Fame. They're the first three Seattle athletes right, to go into their respective Hall of Fame. Uh, all three of them spent ten, nine years uh, playing for the Metropolitan, so like the heart of their career is spent here. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just, like, it shouldn't have been forgotten, truly. And you know, to answer your question, yeah, I was just shocked. I mean, really, like, the entire process was, uh, you know, just otherworldly, right? It's just like God had a plan for this thing. The story needed to be told, dropped it in my lap, and, you know, like with Boys in the Boat, you know, Dan had uh, a journal from one of the, the rowers and then, or three or four of the rowers actually. And then one of the guys is still alive so he could ask questions. Like nobody is alive with this. The 91 the year old daughter of the star player is alive and she's born 15 years after it happened. There's no journals, there's nothing. The entire book was literally put together uh, using newspaper articles, right? I just went back and read them all. And then I was able to use my experiences coaching and playing to really understand what was happening. And so the, the story is told through that perspective. It's told through a competitive uh, standpoint and 
you know, a team building standpoint. And it's, it's essentially how Pete Muldoon, who's the head coach, you know, brings these disparate parts together and forms a, a you know, fantastic team. And it's, it's about the ups and downs of their season, uh, both in, in 1916, which is their first season, and then 1917, which is the championship year, and how they, you know, they formed the nucleus of this, this team that did something incredible. And, you know, I, I don't know, like probably somebody that uh, has a different background would have written a different story, but for whatever reason, it all came together and worked. And what's, what was the secret of the team? How were they able to win the championship their second season? In some respects, they're the, a, a perfect team, right? It's, uh, it, it, they have depth, they have star power, they have the best player on the team is the hardest worker and the best teammate. And just like all these things, if you were going to put a, a, a team together in your mind, you know, you would say, I want this and I want that. And this team had all of it, right? They, at that time, there's only two reserves on the team. And both of the reserves are, are younger players and they both become all-stars later in their career, right? You have three hall of famers, uh, the goalie, uh, the left wing, and then a position back then was called Rover. And it was the sort of a hybrid and you needed somebody that could really score and somebody that could really play defense. Right. And so the Metropolitans have a hall of fame goalie. They have, uh, you know, Frank Foyston, who's really the heartbeat of the team. He's one of their uh, wingers and he makes the entire thing happen. And then Jack Walker's this Rover and he's the best defensive player in hockey at that time. And one of the best scorers. And then when you top it off, Bernie Morris is uh, an orphan. He's a guy that's been pulled off the scrap heap. You know, this is really his last chance to, uh, you know, make a better life for himself. And he turns into the best scorer or not the second best scorer in hockey. The, the Vancouver millionaires have a guy named Cyclone Taylor. That's he's the Michael Jordan uh, or Babe Ruth of, of hockey in that era. Uh, but Morris is the second best scorer in the league, you know, and, and you just like, you couldn't stop this team really. And, and, you know, they overcame a lot, right. There's injuries throughout the year. There's, you know, just like any team, right. You think you finally have it rolling and then all of a sudden you, you lay an egg and you have a really bad game and, you know, and they, they just got this thing to the point where uh, they could just compete harder than everyone else. You threw out Michael Jordan, as you were talking, I was already thinking, so this is Michael Jordan's bulls. Yeah. Except we've never heard of them. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way too, right? So the, the core of the Metropolitans came from the Toronto franchise that had won the Stanley Cup in uh, 1914. And they're all the young players on that team. And then they come over to Seattle. It's a completely different system and a completely different league with, you know, somewhat different rules. And, you know, it, it takes them a little while to figure out how they're going to play. Right. And so they get this thing really, rolling about halfway through the 1917 season and the 1915 Stanley cup champions is the Vancouver millionaires. All seven of their starters are in the hockey hall of fame. The 1916 Stanley cup champions is the Montreal Canadians who are by far the best organization in hockey. And again, I think five or six of the starters on that team are in the hall of fame and the metropolitans hold off the 1915 Stanley cup champions in the most intense pennant chase the league or the era had seen right and then go and absolutely trash the 1916 stanley cup champions to win it all right and and uh you get in and and read the story like there's not one person on the planet that thinks the millionaires or the the metropolitans can beat the canadians right i mean it's like they don't even think it's going to be a series of people like laughing about what a joke it is and 
you know, not to spoil the story, but the Canadians come out and absolutely pound the Metropolitans in the first game, you know, to the point where the media, the national media, everybody's just saying this is a, the series is over. It's not even going to happen. And then the Metropolitans come out and just flip the script. And, you know, I think they outscore them like 15 to two in the last three games. I mean, it's absolutely magical what happens. Well, I'm with you. I'm waiting for the Disney movie to come out. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be your book that uh, they buy the rights from. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Okay, so the story of this team, like like you said at the beginning, huge moments in history, right? Just just moment. It's it's like we're walking into World War One as this is happening. But you also write about the pandemic of the last century, which most of us didn't really know about until this pandemic came around. Talk about that layer to the story. Yeah, so in 1919, the Metropolitans are about to win the Stanley Cup uh, again. And uh, I mean, realistically, they're probably eight hours away from winning their second cup. It's the final game of the series. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the World Series, right? Where the, in baseball, where the two leagues have a little bit different rules, slightly different rules. And so uh, games one, three, and five back then were played by the home team's rules and games two and four were played by the uh, opposing team's rules. And so this is game five. It's in Seattle. So it's Western rules and the Metropolitans have, you know, outscored the Canadians again, it's like 12 or 14 to one in the Western rules games, right? They're going to just basically walk through this last game. And uh, if you rewind a little bit, they actually should have wanted a couple of games prior to that. And it just sort of gets weird. They have a zero, zero tie that goes into double overtime that people are saying is the, the greatest game ever played right? And guys start, you know, collapsing at the end of that game and they have to be carried off the ice and all those things. And, and people just think that it's exhaustion from a long game and a tight game and, and all of that. And then two days later uh, on the day of the final game, everybody wakes up with massive fevers and they realize that it's the Spanish flu that's kicked in and the health department shuts the series down. And so it's declared a tie. Uh, it's the only major professional sports championship that was played and never completed. Uh, and, you know, 16, 18 months ago, it was a historical anomaly that was never going to happen again. And, you know, in the span of like a week, you know, we all knew exactly what they went through. Right. And, and the thing that was funny is I did a bunch of interviews with King and the Times and, and all of that. And, you know, right as this started to happen, right as they were beginning to use the word pandemic and, you know, that we might potentially need a lockdown and all of that. And I did. Uh, you know, the interviews on like Sunday and a Monday. And as we were talking, we're like, well, you know, there's no way that this is going to happen again. It just, you know, they'll get this thing figured out and modern medicine is too strong to, to let this really, you know, affect our lives. Yeah. And then that Tuesday, the, uh, you know, NBA, first player from the NBA tested positive and they canceled the rest of the season that evening. And then the next day was the NHL and then major league baseball, you know, and, and, you know, all of us were talking, the guys in the, the local media, just like, this is actually happening. It's crazy. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to talk about it a lot back, uh, you know, back then, which was great, right? It, it, again, shined a light on a team that was deserving of uh, any attention it could get. It was horrible that it was a global pandemic that was bringing them back to the, you know, the spotlight. But, uh, you know, and the horrific thing about that series is the one of the metro or one of the Canadians players actually dies from the, the Spanish flu. And, you know, he's in his early 30s and he has, you know, a, a son and uh, a wife and and uh, it 
actually leads two of the, the guys. So the, the head coach for the Canadians and the head coach for the Metropolitans both get very, very, very ill. And the Canadians head coach never really fully recovers and he ends up dying a couple of years later. Uh, and then the, the Metropolitans head coach ends up having a heart attack uh, 10 years later. So he's 41 or 42 years old. And, you know, there's a lot of, of people that, that think that he damaged his heart uh, while he was going through the you know, Spanish flu recovery. And that was, that's what led to the heart attack. Uh, you know, and it was, it was helpful for me personally to have researched it as much as I did. Uh, you know, that pandemic took you know, 18 to 20 months uh, to run its course. And, you know, I think that I was, uh, fairly certain that, that this was probably going to do something similar. Like once it started to lock down, it just felt like, you know, it, you realize that nature really does control what's happening in our lives uh, more than we do. And, uh, you know, honestly, modern medicine in 1917 thought that they were too strong to have a global pandemic too. And, and they did, uh, you know, the other thing that, that helped me and I'm hopeful that this is still the case is, you know, when it was over, it was over. There was, you know, no hangover to society. Uh, like realistically, the Roaring Twenties is, you know, what came out of the the Spanish flu pandemic. And you know, there's a, a great quote in the PBS documentary about the Spanish flu pandemic, and it said, "Once the dying stopped, the forgetting started." And it was just like people didn't want to talk about it anymore. And if you look at the Metropolitan's 1920 season, there is no reference whatsoever to uh, to the pandemic, to any of it. Um, you know, and it's interesting, they had to wear masks back then and people freaked out, you know, it's very similar to today. Uh, the, one of the things that makes me laugh is the Seattle public school superintendent was one of the strongest, uh, you know, anti-maskers back then and was livid that, uh, you know, that he needed to wear a mask and that people needed to wear a mask. Uh, you know, schools only shut down for a couple of weeks. I think it was like mid-October, and then they started back up in January of uh, 1918, uh, or 1919, excuse me. Uh, you know, and, and uh, another thing that struck me as funny was, you know, for the Metropolitan's games in, in the 1919 season, there were actually armed police guard, uh, officers outside the doors ensuring that people were wearing their masks correctly you know, and just laugh. Like, could you imagine that happening today? I don't think that would go over very well. No. Uh, well, that that's just incredible. I the, the hope that I take out of what you just said is that we're about to have another roaring 20s, right? I hope so too. We're about to have another decade of joy and happiness. I'm yeah. going to look forward to that. And growth and, you know, everything great, great music, great yes. film. Flourishing. Yeah. Let's call Great sports. It flourishing. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Well, speaking of flourishing and sports, looking at your past, okay, so you are a writer. You're you're an amazing writer, but you've spent so much of your career as an athlete, a coach, a sports writer, always always connected with sports. So I'm going to use the Marie Kondo if you know who Marie Kondo mm -hmm. is. Oh, yeah. Why does that spark so much joy for you? Why why what is it about sports? You know, as a kid, it was just something that I did and uh, I enjoyed it as I got older, you know, especially in college, it was a life changing experience for me. Uh, you know, I was uh, in some respects, somebody that had talent that I didn't know how to use and I wasn't necessarily the hardest worker. And, 
you know, I got to college and everybody was just as talented as I was and worked significantly harder than I did. And, you know, I, I was forced to make a choice between actually caring and, and pushing myself to be great or, you know, having it all end for me. And, you know, once I made that decision and I uh, really started to, to grow as a human being, it just became something that I wanted to pass along to others, right? And, and uh, at the end of the day, I absolutely love the journey of sports, right? Or of, of life, really. But the thing that to me is so fantastic about sports is that there is a scoreboard, right? And so, you know, it's, you're gonna have good days, you're gonna have bad days, you're gonna have days where everything goes your way, days where everything goes against you, right? Days where the officiating is horrible. And, you know, it's just like, how are you gonna bring it through all of those? You know, how can you separate the, the process from the outcome and, you know, push yourself to, to compete through all of it? And it just, it became something that I, it just, it's the one thing in my life where I can disconnect everything else and just completely be in the moment and, uh, and enjoy it. Well, um, here's to hoping we all find a little bit more of that right? yeah. as we move into our, our new roaring twenties. So what is that <laughs> thing for us that allows us? Cause I really, I really, understand what you mean when you say that like when when you have a brain that has a lot going on and more than ever in history so much is coming at us and i think we are we're looking for those moments that can take our our mind take our whole self and and we can enjoy ourselves as a whole being right and leave some things behind to think about the next yeah and in some respects for me the, the the hard part with sports is that you know you only get to really do it for, you know, a finite amount of time and, you know, trying to coach and, and make a living out of it gets, it gets tough too, right? It's just, it's like acting or singing or anything where, you know, there's just not very many spots for people. And so uh, we kind of laughed about this earlier, just the thing that the writing did for me is it, it you know, I guess didn't give me, I, I discovered another avenue where I feel the same way, right? Where I can uh, you know, disconnect from life and, and just be completely in the moment. And uh, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, again, right. You have that, you have one referee that loves you and the game goes your way and they love your, your manuscript. And then you, the next day you submit something and it doesn't go <laughs> so well and you have to decide, are you going to keep playing or not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think everything that I learned in sports kicked in, you know, the, the first time that I sent a sample chapter off and keep in mind, I'd, I'd never written anything longer than a 500 page or 500 word blog post really, and didn't totally know what I was doing. And so I send it off and the literary agents take it and look at it. And I get the response of, you know, would he be open to a ghostwriter? Right? I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like uh no i mean if this thing succeeds or fails it's going to be my words and at that point it was you know most likely going to fail and you, know, you just you just keep working at it you know i also laugh like you know i quit my job at the sports commission to write this book i just was so passionate about the story and i knew that if i tried to work and write uh, and be a dad and coach that i wasn't going to do it and the writing was going to be the thing that fell by the wayside and you know, my wife was super supportive and, you know, I, I waited until I actually knew the full story and I knew what I was going to write about. And I'd started writing a couple of chapters and then 
I jumped in with both feet and I actually wrote the end of the book first, which was the, the series. And, you know, that was the easiest part for me, right? I'm just like reading these game recaps, understanding what's happening and then communicating it back. And then you go back to chapter one and it's all character development. And I'd never done anything like that. And I write this chapter that it's my opinion, you know, it's one of the greatest, you know, chapters ever written and I hand it to my wife and she reads it and she's like this is terrible hands it back to me and I was crushed right and then I rewrote it and I handed it to her and she's like nope and that probably went on 20 times and so I gave up on her because she was just being critical because she was my wife and I sent it to my brother and he's like this is absolutely terrible right and then I rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and then I finally get to the point where it's magical and I send it to him and I don't get a response over the weekend. At the same time, I send it to the editor, you know, and say, here, here's the first chapter. And it comes back two days later, completely rewritten, right? So she ghost wrote it, the editor did. And my brother calls me on Monday and he's like, this is terrible. You're going to get this though. I promise you, you'll get this, but it's just not very good. And at that point, that was the one moment where I thought, "Uh oh, I just made arguably the biggest life mistake. You know, I don't know how to do this. And I was like laying in bed, panicking, freaking out. All of a sudden the whole thing popped in my head and I was like, oh, wait. And I got up and wrote it and sent it off to everyone. They're like, you got it. You know, and then I turned to my wife and was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do for chapter two. And then boom, like whole thing just shows up in my head and I sat down and knocked it out. And then I was off and running. So yeah, like nothing's easy, right? Nothing's easy. Nothing. You have to build new muscles every exactly. each new thing in our lives. Yep. Well, Kevin, this has been awesome. I can't wait to read your book cover to cover since I've only had a chance to skim through. So now I'm going to read the entire thing. But I need, uh, I need to have you answer our final question that we ask all of our guests. And I'm very interested in your answer. If you could have everyone in Seattle do one thing differently tomorrow, that's going to make the world a better place, what would you have all of us do? I mean, societally today, I think everyone needs to take a deep breath and take a, a step back. And, uh, you know, one thing that, again, that I love about sports and I love about teams is you have disparate personalities. You have, you know, different ways of looking at situations and different ways of processing situations. And when you're on a team and you trust your teammates, you don't care right? It doesn't matter if somebody has a completely different viewpoint than you do on a situation. You know, you just, you understand that all of these things are what make the team great. And, you know, I look at today and at some point we all forgot that we're teammates, right? And yeah. that all of us are, you know, Americans and on the same team. And, you know, while we might have different political viewpoints than others, right? It's like society needs both viewpoints. We need both people passionately arguing respectfully, uh, you know, and at some point, like we're going to take the best from both sides and, you know, society functions at its highest point. So I think if anything, that would be my, uh, you know, not very shallow uh, thought on that. It's just like, I just wish that people could look at each other and see us all as teammates again. And, you know, try to figure out how we can put the best of all of our ideas together to, uh, you know, make this a, a the special place that it is. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me end with our prayer of blessing. May the Lord bless you and all you put your hand to. May the Lord be gracious to you and all who hear your story. May God bring unity to our community and peace to us all. 
Thanks, Kevin. This has been really fun. Thank you. 